I'm not sure if I've ever said this anywhere before, but I remember this one time when I was camping with my friends and I threw an ax at the fire and it went through the fire and a bunch of my friends were on the other side. That was a moment that I'll always remember because it was how I wasn't just hurting myself, I had the potential to impact other people. This is episode number 12 with entrepreneur, TED Talk and keynote speaker, Michael Brody Waite. Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, fitness trainer and business owner. We all go through life a little bit differently, but we all have one common journey, and that's the journey to become the best version of ourselves. Each day, we try to upgrade ourselves. We want to be better today than we were yesterday. That's why each week, we bring you the tools and inspiration to help you become the best version of yourself and find your best you. Thanks for spending some time with me and Michael today. There was a point in Michael's life where he literally thought addiction was going to kill him, and he constantly had moments where he thought death was fast approaching. Now, as he sits at 16 years clean, he genuinely feels addiction was the best thing that could have happened to him. Today, Michael and I discuss the importance of taking off the mask and truly being authentic. He talks about how every minute we spend worrying about what we can't control, we waste a minute that we could have been thinking about what we can control. If you're watching this on YouTube, give it a like and a comment, engage with me, subscribe there. If you're listening on iTunes, make it a review, move this thing up. The more reviews you write, the more people get access to these tools, tips, and inspiration. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on being our best self today with the man, Michael Brody Wait. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Best You Podcast. I got the super inspiring Michael Brody Wait with me here today. I'm super pumped to have him. Uh, Michael is a keynote speaker, has delivered a TED Talk, um, but back in the earlier days, you did college dropout, a former addict, and everything like that. So I want to, I actually want to stop, go back and start back in your college days. You went to UC Davis yeah. and you ended up flunking out. Is that correct? Yeah. Gotcha. And so I just kind of want to talk about what was going through your mind when you were kind of getting to that dropout point or close to it? Were you worried or did you just have this kind of like nonchalant, everything's going to work out kind of a idea? Oh, man. I actually haven't thought about that in a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, UC Davis, you did your homework. Yeah. Um, so for me, my whole life, I never really applied myself academically. It's really hard for me to get excited about theory. I really like reality. Mm. Um, and so for me, I'd never applied my talent um, at school and I never got straight A's or anything like that. So I was at UC Davis and I went through this inflection point and I said, I'm going to absolutely apply myself. And so, uh, in a couple for two or three quarters, I got straight A's and then I was like, what's the point? Uh, cause I didn't care about getting a degree. I'm yeah. not devaluing degrees. I just, I, I never cared about it. Um, but I wanted to prove to myself that I could be successful. And once I was able to, since I didn't value academia, I was like, well, now I don't care about this. And right about the same time, um, I'd been cut off from my parents and I was completely on my own. And I started experimenting with using alcohol and drugs on a regular basis. And, uh, I tried to start a business instead. I just became a drunk. And yeah. I, for me, I was like, I still tried to go to school because that's what I was supposed to be doing. Right. But I stopped going to class. I didn't care. Um, I remember our Nutrition 101, a class that everybody should pass. Yeah. Uh, I went to high and I actually did the Scantron thing where I went C across the entire Scantron. <laughs> oh, my Lord. And I actually thought that that was going to help me. Yeah. And of course it didn't. Right. So I was still... 
I wasn't thoughtful about what I was doing. Okay. I was just trying to stay numb. And so I was surprised when they kicked me out for yeah. not passing any of my classes. Really? Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and then after that, you moved to LA. Yes. Right. And then you were kind of pursuing your uh, passion for in the music industry. Yeah. Right. And then, so kind of tell me about that move to LA and what kind of, what happened from there? So um, to me, when I was kicked out, I, I went and I worked at a record store called The Warehouse in Sacramento. And um, I was like, you know, I really want to get in the music industry. I'd always want to be an A&R rep and start my own label and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, you know what, if school isn't for me, I'm going to go back to LA and try to make it happen. Um, I had this great experience where I tried to be an assistant to an artist manager and I was doing really well three days in and then I got really high and really drunk uh, before my fourth day and I totally screwed it up and I didn't get the job. And so for me, I was like, you know what? Um, I want to get into the music industry. I had actually developed a business idea that I, that essentially was like iTunes before iTunes came out. And I wanted to go apply it, but I wanted to get high and get drunk every night more than I wanted to go do that. And so I would uh, tell my parents that I would work for them and I would like lie to them about what I was doing and yeah. get money. And then I'd disappear for a while. And then when they stopped helping me, I'd just use credit cards. But uh, I had this incredible passion for the music industry, right. but I had a greater passion for staying high. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, you know, I, how long did it take you to go throughout this process like, what was the turning point to realize that, okay, crap, like, I actually need to do something about this problem? Yeah, it's so there were definitely, I had a lot of flashes and moments, right? right. Like, I remember, uh, I'm not sure if I've ever said this anywhere before, but I remember this one time when I was camping with my friends and I threw an axe at the fire and it went through the fire and a bunch of my friends were on the other side and it didn't hit anybody. But that was a moment that I'll always remember because it was how I wasn't just hurting myself. I had the potential to wow. impact other people. Mm. Um, and I, of course, you know, at the time, tried to laugh it off and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, what, probably 20 years later, I still carry that. And yeah, they're still seriously. my friends. But I had moments like that where I was like, I probably have a problem. But the interesting thing about denial is uh, you're the last one to know. Um, so for me, I, I thought that I could handle it. And I kept running out of options and eventually uh, my parents did an intervention on me and I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. But I had been talking to a therapist and I started to slowly realize that this wasn't normal. Um, and then uh, my last like stretch was I was living in Venice Beach, crashing on this dude's couch that was my best friend from college. And I would just steal from him during the day while he went to work and I would just stay high and drunk as often as I could. He loved me. So he fed me. His name is Aaron and he's still a good friend to this day. But eventually my parents said, we will send you to rehab. And I was like, no, I don't need it. But like, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have anything. I had what Aaron gave me. And I was like one couch away from being truly homeless, even though I didn't know where to go. And I started throwing up blood and my parents had said, you know, we'll send you a treatment. And so Aaron talked me into taking a vacation, Yeah, um, which is interesting when your whole life's a vacation. Right. Um, and I didn't, I knew that I couldn't stay on his couch yeah. and I knew my next step was a street and I didn't want that. So I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll go to treatment, but I'm not going to take this seriously. Yeah. But I ended up. But at least up, you finally pulled yourself to yeah. actually going. Yeah, but I didn't go because I was like, oh, I need help. It was, I'm out of options. Oh, okay. And that's why it's really viable huh. for consequences to exist. Tell me about addicts. that difference. Um, the difference is I didn't think I needed it. And I didn't think, I thought that when I was done, I would just go back to doing what I was doing. But when you're literally, I, I, would, I would live in three-hour uh, three increments. Okay. I would get high, 
do whatever, and then try to get high again. Yeah. So I'm just trying to get through today and tomorrow. And so for me, it's really fundamental Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I wasn't going to be able to stay at Aaron's and I didn't have anywhere to go and I couldn't afford to even have a belt around my waist. Right. So when there was an option for shelter, I took that option. There was a part of me that knew I kind of needed it. But the truth is I initially took it for the shelter and for the three meals a day and for the fact that I didn't have to go out on the street. Yeah. But once I was there, that little part of me that kind of knew that I had a problem, that part started to go, hey, maybe we should kind of try to figure out why we're sitting in Betty Ford right now. Right. Because normal people don't like when they need shelter and food, go to Betty Ford. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point. So now you're in the the recovery process. You're in – um, tell me about a little bit of that process. I'm sure it's not all smooth sailing during that, no. um, that time period. So tell me about kind of what you learned, maybe the road bumps and, and the maybe biggest obstacle as you went through it. Um, in rehab or in recovery sense? Um, let's go specifically to rehab. Rehab. So for me, um, the second day I was there, they gave a lecture on how you're significantly more likely to relapse if you smoke cigarettes. Mm. Um, and so I took my cartons of cigarettes and gave them to the people, even though I didn't fully believe I was an addict. Yeah. Well, I promptly asked for them back. Don't give me too much credit. (laughs) Um, but I, I was introduced to 12 step programs there. And at first I didn't think that I belonged. And then there were a number of statements, a number of stories that people made. I remember someone saying, um, if you don't think that you're an addict, just don't use for a year. And I was like, there's no way I could do that. Um, I was really good at pointing to the one night two months ago that I only had, you know, a little bit. Um, So I started to hear other people's stories and they were telling my story Mm. and they were and I was able to look at their consequences. I remember there was this guy that like his wife and his kids want nothing to do with him. And I was like, man, like everything he said is what I do. Wow. Um, and he was a lot older, but I mean, it was, we were in the same spot. So it's at this point when you kind of realize I am an addict. Yes. Actually. It's like, I wait this. So to me, it was kind of, it wasn't even necessarily I'm an addict. It was, I've wasted all my potential. I assume that I'm going to die and that my life is a waste. Maybe this is my shot to turn this around. Okay. And then on top, once I had that thought, cause I'm an addict, I wanted to use things to get what I want. So it's more like, can I use this as a way to get what I want in life? But then as I started to engage in the process, I was like, oh, man, I really am an addict. Jeez. And you start to do – you start to – it was 12-step programs. I start to work the steps um, and you start to see yourself and it's really hard to ignore it. And the really special thing about 12-step programs is when you're working the steps, you do them with a sponsor. That's not an expert. It's just somebody that's an addict that's worked them before you. And when they t- start saying, I relate to this, I relate to this, I relate to this, you go, wow, like I'm an addict. I need help. And I, this is my last, this is the house. Uh, my buddy Toby says, this is the last house on the block. Yeah. Like after this, like we expect to die. Okay. Gotcha. I'm going to fast forward yeah. a little bit now. Um, now you're, you get back to where you from, you know, you're not, you're from California. When from you, Cali, why, did, why did you yeah. go to Nashville? Uh, because they, they said, Mike, um, you've done 28 days of treatment, yeah. but you are still way too much in your head and you need to learn emotional intelligence okay. and spiritual intelligence. And so they said, you need to go to another place to do more work. And you're like that. It's always great to be told that you're sicker than <laughs> some of the other addicts in rehab, yeah, but sure. like you're sicker than most. So. They gave me two brochures, a place in Monterey, California, that that's like my favorite place in California and a place in Nunnally, Tennessee. I didn't even, I, this is embarrassing. I thought Tennessee was on the East coast. Yeah. Like I, when you're in California, (laughs) geography (laughs) was my thing. Everything's just California. So it was a brochure with, uh, horses and cowboys on the front. Oh my Lord. And Nunnally, Tennessee, for those of you who don't know, is literally uh, a gas station and a treatment center. That's it. And it's about an hour out of Nashville. 
And the guy said, pick one of these. And I went back to my room. I'm like, clearly, I'm going to go to Monterey. I'm never going to Tennessee. And they, they have this saying that um, everything, all the decisions that I made are what got me here. Mm. And so that was the first time that I said, I'm going to do the opposite of what my will is. And I wasn't quite sure if there was a God at the time, but I was like, if there is one, I'm going to choose the opposite of my will and choose his will. And so I said, I'll go to Tennessee, even though I had no desire to go to Tennessee. Right. And that was like the first time that I actually surrendered. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that was probably such a, probably a big decision for you going to Tennessee and not that Monterey, because you said that's your favorite, I know. one of your favorite places. And you never know what, uh, if you could have relapsed or anything like that, going yeah. to such a, you know, great place that has maybe a lot of the temptations that you had done in the past. Um, so now you, you in Nashville and you're looking for a job and you had somebody pushing you to, to get a job in five days or something. I saw you had like a yeah. five day deadline. When I got out of that treatment center in only Tennessee, I went to a halfway house and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of addicts end up in halfway houses aren't legit about trying to be clean or, or sober. So they have a rule that you have five business days to get a job or that or you get out. So you have to be really serious about rebuilding yeah. your life. And so, yeah, they were like super quick turnaround. I know it's, it was a, luckily I, I went in on a Wednesday. Yeah. So that technically gave me almost a full week. Yeah. Right. From a business day perspective. I didn't know what business days were. I said that in my TED talk <laughs> at the time. I had no idea what that was. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I, I had a couple of days to get a job and um, I was lucky enough that I got two. Yeah. So what, what was the process like? Did you have confidence that you were going to get a job because you, I think I saw you <laughs> say you had this like three-year gap on your resume where you're going through kind of rehab and stuff and or just weren't really doing anything so how does somebody with that three-year gap in five days get a job uh you know here's the thing when you're convinced that you're going to die and you take like this last ditch effort to do something everything else doesn't feel like it takes it doesn't seem like as big of a deal Mm -hmm. and also i've never done this before i've never been in tennessee i've never gone to treatment i've never been a recovering addict and so, like, I remember I went to the grocery store and I remember sitting in the cereal aisle for 20 minutes trying to figure out which cereal to buy because I thought that if I bought the wrong one, I would relapse. Oh, my gosh. And so, like, everything was new and overwhelming and crazy. So, it was really surreal. And yeah. so, I, I just went to Green Hills Mall, which is a mall here in Nashville, and I just walked around and applied to as many jobs as I could. Sam Goodyear was one of them. Dell Kiosk was another. And I just, I mean, when they told me that, I was like, okay, I got to go get a job. Yeah. And I didn't think that I would get one. And I didn't know if they were sincere in kicking me out. I later found out they were, but luckily I got one. But mm-hmm. it was, I was just like, okay, I'll try this. But you yeah. have to remember, there was a part of me that was like, I assume that I will use and die before I even get done with the job process. Gosh, that's got to be self like an unbelievably self-defeating it is it is but it's also liberating because i didn't care about whether or not it happened i mean i'm not saying it's good but it was like hey man all right i'll try this but if not i'll just go use yeah so i want to i know you had you kind of talked a a little bit about this in your ted talk but going into those job interviews like you know you thought maybe like at first i'm not gonna talk about my past because they're not gonna want to hear that but then you talked about how you were open about it so i want you to talk a little bit about kind of authenticity and what that did for you yeah so um in recovery they they told me that you have to do a searching and fearless moral inventory and that you have to be honest with everybody around you or else you won't be like your addiction hides in the dark so you have to shine light on everything and so I, I, it took me a while to get used to that, but I got used to that in recovery. And then when I went out looking for a job in the real world, you know, my sponsor and and everybody else, they're in recovery, but they're not the people offering me a job and offering me my house. And so when I had to think about how do I explain these, this three year gap, I was genuinely a hundred, not even scared. I was like, I was completely convinced that if I told them the truth of what I was doing the last three years, they're like, I wouldn't 
I right now, as a, as a guy with 16 years clean, if someone were to say, I've been using the last three years, even I'm going to be skeptical yeah, oh, on yeah, hiring 100%. that person. So I don't know how someone that just doesn't even know is going to be like, oh, well, you know what? We're going to give you access to the cash register. So we think the <laughs> fact that you used to steal to buy drugs recently is a really good idea for us. Right. No, you think it's nobody's going to give you the job. So it was a real test of can I be can I be real in the real world? Yeah. Like this works in a sandbox and in a controlled environment, but does this work in the real world? And I, and I ultimately went out on a limb because um, I was less scared of not getting a job. I was more scared of dying by using. Mm. And so my sponsor said that I had to do it. And so I, I, I told him the truth and I got the job. And that really started for me a reorientation of my understanding of what was true and what was not. My fear had always been, I need to be who you want me to be in order to get what I want. Yeah. And now I had this really new notion of, I just have to be the best version of myself and trust and surrender the outcome. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I'm always going to like, it's always going to work out. Like in the Ted talk, I talk about my experience at Dell and corporate America. You know, I didn't get to this in the Ted talk, but the worst thing that I feared did happen when I was open about being a recovering drug addict. Someone did stru- uh, uh, spread rumors about me yeah. and say that I was high and, and that that's why I was doing so well, that I was on, an, on an, um, some sort of stimulant drug. And there were guys around me that were, yeah. um, but I wasn't. I was going to meetings and stuff. But the worst thing that I feared of being open about being a recovering addict actually happened. But then the actual impact of that was negligible. And so realizing like, wow, if I take the mask off and I can just be myself, this is easier, it's more efficient, it's scary and vulnerable, but maybe I can just wear one face in this world as yeah. opposed to 16. And I kept testing that theory. And I mean, to this day, it's it's crazy. It's like most of us want to wear a mask because we're scared of what will happen. But even if the worst thing happens, it's not that bad. Mm, I like that because I think that is one of the big questions that we have. Like, Why is it so hard to take off the mask? Because we're fearful of what might happen if like we're super vulnerable and we're actually ourselves like is somebody not going to like us right or like is somebody going to judge us for who we actually are and because if you have that fear and you have the fear that somebody's going to do that to you it's just like like that could just be one of the worst things ever but like you said it's not and so here's the thing um so i love the best you Mm -hmm. this is what i've learned over the last 16 years we don't consider the cost of the max, the mask. We consider the cost of taking it off. We think if we take it off, people are going to reject us. The cost of keeping the mask on is that you dull all of your unique positive mm. qualities, all your strengths, whatever makes you the beautiful, unique person that is you in this world. When you put that mask on, you don't just obscure whatever it is that you're trying to protect from a weakness perspective. You obscure your strengths too. Yeah. And we don't have enough people in this world that are willing to say, hey, here are my assets and here are my liabilities and here's what I'm doing about the liabilities and I'm going to let my assets shine. And so it's not just like I'm scared. Now I'm not. I'm less scared of taking off the mask. I still have fear about it mm-hmm. and I'm more scared of obscuring whatever is the unique value that I have to offer this yeah, world. Yeah, I love that you, you preach the importance of taking off the mask because it is your true power, right? What it, While you may unveil your biggest weakness, it could be your biggest asset Absolutely. down the road. So what is your conversation like to people to help kind of bring them to that realization of like the importance of taking off the mask and kind of breaking that barrier and breaking over that fear. So when we, it's actually, I've done research on this. Um, So when you put on a mask to cover up your weaknesses, eventually what you do is you actually convince yourself that whatever your mask is, is your face. Mm. So um, that's how you get a drug addict that uh, doesn't think he has a drug problem and everybody around him does. That's how you get companies like Enron that told a bunch of lies and everybody believed the lies that end up the founders go to jail. 
Uh, Theranos is a recent example of that. So to me, what ends up happening is Dr. Bob Trivers talks about um, we will hide the truth from ourselves to hide it from others. And so we end up not actually knowing that we're wearing a mask. And then as a result, we're not able to do something about our weaknesses because we don't actually even acknowledge that they're there. And we're not able to leverage our strengths because we're not able to acknowledge that they're there. And so one of the things I tell people, I tell recovering addicts all the time, like, dude, recovery isn't the worst thing. It's the best thing that'll ever happen to you. Like I have a system that I use that takes anything that's a challenge or the worst thing about me and turns it into the best thing about me. And the first step is being authentic about what's happening. But the next step is surrendering the outcome and then doing the uncomfortable work regarding whatever's going on, regarding whatever your weakness is. And then you get to grow. But if you don't, if you try, people do this all the time. They won't ask for help. They pretend that they don't have a weakness. They pretend they understand something. And when we do that, we stifle our own growth. Yeah. And we lose the opportunity to become a bigger, better uh, person, not just for ourselves, but for other people, yeah. simply by not being honest about where we need help. Yeah. And that, and to me, where you just kind of ended it with, is like, if you can't find the confidence that you need to be the best version of yourself, it's like, to me, you have the responsibility to show up to other people in your life, your loved ones, your family, your friends as the best version of yourself. If like you can't find the motivation to lift yourself up, then find the motivation in the outside source that I need to be that best version for them yep. in, in whatever capacity that might be. And I want you to talk a little bit more about that because I think that being authentic and doing the uncomfortable work is something that you hear a lot about. And it's a little, not self-explanatory, but you can kind of derive some kind of thought process about that. But I want you to talk a little bit more about surrendering your outcome and what that means. Yeah. So um, when so in recovery, one of the things I was taught was I don't have control over anything other than my actions and my decisions. Hmm. So the first step was surrender people, places and things. And that was something that was really hard to do. Um, But at the same time, it over time, what I realized was it was incredibly empowering because I was able to reclaim a tremendous amount of energy and focus and just mental intention on specific issues when I was able to actually let go of things. So, for example, um, I remember, you know, when I started my company, I was really obsessed over whether or not everything that I put on the line I was going to lose. If I wasted all my energy focusing on that, I just had to surrender the outcome, man. I took the risk and I did it. But then the really the, the beautiful thing that recovery taught me is and I think people understand this, but I think it's one thing to understand another thing to master it, to just focus on what we can control, to be able to crowd out everything that isn't that. Because every minute that we spend on something that we can't control is a minute that we lose on something that we mm. can. Yeah. And so we live in a world where through podcasts and the, and the internet and social media and books and TED Talks, we have more access to best practices to better ourselves. And yet I feel like we've never been in more pain as, right. a, as a human race. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are things that we can do to better our personal circumstances, who we are, even if it's just like hacking our perception of the world. Um, But we have to stay really focused on what we can control. Because there's so much more out there that isn't on that too. Oh man, when you said that, I I mean, even my sports teams, man, when they make the wrong trade, and I don't know this wrong trade, (laughs) but like, oh, why they trade for that guy or whatever, like even that kind of stuff that robs me of the energy. And I feel like being a recovering addict, 
the longer the the more that our society focuses digitally on things that we cannot control, yeah. I feel like the more being a recovering addict gives me a competitive advantage. Yeah. Because I can crowd stuff. I don't always do it, but I have a muscle that I've been building for the last 16 years to crowd stuff out yeah. and just ignore it. Yeah. So let's actually talk about that. Um the you know the three steps of those three steps and you've preached their importance, what is the most one what is the one that you struggle with most today or the one that's hardest to master for you mm. at this day and age? Um wow, that's a really great question. So uh, actually there's a, there's a fourth principle that I wasn't able to put in my Ted talk. Um, and so to be clear, these are my, my four principles that I got as a, as an, as an addict and as an entrepreneur, but they aren't the 12 steps. 12 steps are, they inspire them, but this isn't them. But one of the things I was taught in recovery was you can't keep what you don't give away. Okay. Um, and so for me being able to turn around once I've gone through a process where I've been authentic about something, surrender the outcome and did the uncomfortable work. Turning around and helping someone else do that, um, it isn't hard for me, but I get lost because I try to help too many people. Okay. Um, maybe not too many is the wrong word, but uh, I, I will constantly, I will focus on trying to help other people. And what happens is when, when I'm doing that, I lose sight of what I can control and what I can't. Okay. And so like I have um, uh, three really good friends in recovery, Kate, Toby, and Charlie. And in the middle of this year, they all kind of gave me the same feedback, which was I was coming off a little bit like, hey, you need to do these things. And I was doing a little less like what we're supposed to do. Hey, this is my experience. Mm. And what I realized was I had this incredible passion for wanting to help them with, a, with each. It was all three different individual problems, okay. but I was a common denominator. Um, and I'd been through all three of their circumstances and I really wanted to help them. And maybe I was like all hyped on the Ted talk and I thought I knew something and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I really, I love you so much. I want this to be better for you. And then I had slipped out of my job is not to control them. And I was trying to control them. I was like, you will use this tool. You will read this book. You will do this kind of thing. And they're like, Hey man, surrender it, share your experience, then surrender. You're not responsible for this. And so the whole give it like giving it away is a huge part of my ethos around these principles, but that is the one where I'm at greatest risk of going back to the second principle and having to redo work. Gotcha. I think I think that's awesome um, because I think it when you are so passionate about something, you do sometimes have to take a step back and be like, okay, am I approaching it the right way? Yeah. I think that's something that will probably continue to maybe face you in the future, but as long as you're conscious and more mindful of it and can bring yourself back, then that'll conti- continue to you know serve you in, in the best way possible. One thing I want to ask is, you know, I think uh, a phrase that I like and, and believe mostly in is that you need to crawl, then walk, then jog, then run, kind of take those baby steps. Yep. Did when you were out of, um, or when you, when you have, when you had recovered, right? Were you ready for recovery did you have you know moments where you thought you were going to relapse or like just kind of take that idea of crawling walking jogging and running and and answering the question like were you ready yeah for recovery like mentally i think uh i don't want to speak for most addicts but i think almost none of us are ready for recovery we usually end up in recovery because the fire got too hot and it was a better option Mm. Um, that's why we, there's a lot of talk about like, you don't want to enable an addict. You want the best thing you can do for an addict is let us feel our consequences because, um, in the beginning we're motivated. I don't want to speak for everybody. I was motivated by pain. So at the beginning crawling was like, okay, I just have to do these things so that I don't die. 
Um, and then it was like, okay, so maybe uh, walk, walking was, okay, this is a process. And so I want to work all 12 steps and go to meetings and get a sponsor and do service work and all this kind of stuff. And then over time, it was like, wow, maybe I can start thinking about how I can be of service within the recovery world. And how can I start applying recovery to more advanced parts of my life, like my professional? I'm, that's one of the things I'm obsessed with is applying what I learned in recovery to be a better professional. I don't think it's limiting to addicts. Right. And so it absolutely was a progression like that. And I just don't think that I really appreciate on the front end that it would progress that way. It was just kind of like binary. It was I used to use and now... I don't. And I, I mean, people have different thoughts about this, but I don't think I'll ever be recovered. Okay. Um, and I think that's actually one of the most helpful things in the world, knowing that um, I could relapse, um, knowing that it's possible that, I, that I'll always have the disease of addiction keeps me engaged in the process. Mm. When, I got, when I got 10 years clean, that was when I really started to believe that I would never relapse. It, yeah. For the first 10 years, I truly believed I would relapse. And sitting here with 16, I can tell you that um, I – it would be really hard for me to see that happen, but it doesn't mean that I believe it's not possible, mm -hmm. but that keeps me engaged in the process. Yeah. But I, th I think like you said, the engagement and the fact that you are giving away what you experienced is keeps you, I think there's no better way to keep, hold yourself accountable and to actually keep clean in the process. I think being able to like give the gift to other people because that constant engagement is always there. Yeah. Um, so right now you like to help a lot of people um, in the recovery process and stuff like that. But I want you to imagine that you're in a speaking in front of high school students, ninth yeah. graders or middle schoolers, and imagine that none of them are addicts, hopefully. Um, and like, like you, you talk about how it's been such a kind of a blessing in disguise for you and, and how you've learned these different principles and been able to apply that moving forward. But I think that you would probably agree that you wouldn't wish that addiction, everything that you went through, maybe on anybody. Right. So talk to that group of high school students, middle school students who don't have the problem yet about how to either prevent it or avoid it. I don't like talking in the negative sense, but how to just kind of keep living the way they're doing or, or something like that. Oh man, that's big. Um, so I actually did a talk for like 500 high school students. So okay. I'm going to try to think about what I told them. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember. So I'll try to think about the mindset. So for me, um, I don't really know how to prevent a subset of those kids becoming addicts. I, I don't know necessarily know how to prevent that. Um, what I what I have a lot of experience in is when I have a challenge asking for help. I was terrible at that. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons I became an addict um, mm -hmm. because I had a lot of issues that weren't addiction and weren't substances um, well before I started using those to make myself feel better. Um, I didn't feel uh, like that my true self was okay. I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel safe. I didn't know how to take care of myself emotionally. Um, high school students, I, I think about, you know, younger kids, like something like 50% of the jobs that they'll ultimately do don't even exist yet. Yeah, I've heard that. And too. so one of the things people talk about is what we need to teach these younger generations is emotional intelligence and the ability to deal with change. And so what I would say is you don't need to be an addict to use these principles. Um, but the ability to be authentic about wherever you are and whatever the situation is, um, and then being able to surrender what it means when you take off the mask and to be able to then do uncomfortable work is, a, is, is basically a process that anybody can use. And I think that if you can, if you don't have to become an addict to learn that process, I don't think you need to be an addict. I think if people 
if someone had equipped me and trained me to use that process before I ever knew what a drug or a drink was, I question whether or not I would have like picked them up. Right. I might have, and maybe I'd end up in the same space. I don't know. But telling them that, you know, some of you are probably going to end up wrestling with this. And one way to avoid it would be to practice what you do once you're there. And that is ask for help. And then once you get it, go do the work and don't worry so much about what all this means, about how you look and what it means if you're doing all this stuff. Just like literally surrender all that stuff and just go do the work. And that can be true for getting better at a, at a sport. That can be true for getting better at a, a skill at school. That can be true for social stuff. Social stuff is so hard when you're in high school. It's mm-hmm. hard for me. Um, but learning how to do that, we live in a world that is addicted to inauthenticity. We do it online. We do it in person. Everybody's living behind a mask. And so I believe that it's gotta be even worse in high school than when I was there. Oh yeah. So if you can drop, if you can learn to drop the mask, you may not need to pick up the drug. Mm. I think that's, I think it's just so big when I keep going back in my head to when you were talking about how we live in an age where you have so much more out there to be your best you to work on becoming the best version of yourself. You have these resources But like, why is that the case? It's because like you were talking about for every minute that you spend worrying about what you can't control, you lose a minute of what you can. And there's so probably much more out there and grasping people's focus on what you can't control or just kind of like comparing yourselves and giving you more and more masks. And we're spending so much more time on that rather than what there is actually out there on what you can control. Yeah. So I think that's just. I just keep going back to that and being able to drop the mask that you said to those, the high school students. I think that's just such a big step that they need to be able to take and kind of gain the courage to be able to do. One thing when you were saying that, that I thought of that, I'm not sure I've ever thought about this way. It is really easy. We live technology and I love technology, but it's in today's day and age. It isolates us quite a bit. And I think that you can focus on what you can't control from the convenience of your isolation I think you need to be in relationship with other human beings in order to focus on what you can control. And that, mm-hmm. because that, because when you focus on what you can control, you have to go do something about it. And that usually means engaging help in some way, whether it's a friend, whether it's a resource or whatever. And so for me, like focusing on what I can't control is really easy. Okay. It's really convenient and I don't have to leave my house to do it. Gotcha. So you actually have to take like extra steps into focusing what you can control on. Well, once you focus on what you can control, how can you not do something about it? And then when, and then when you go to do something about it, I mean, so you're, you're this physically fit guy that teaches class and stuff. I've taken your class, which I love. And so if I'm like, Hey, I need to get fit. I need, I don't know how to do these exercises. I need to go somewhere to get the help. I'm an addict. I don't know what to do. I go to a meeting, but when you are staring at only what you can't control, how can you not feel motivated to do something about Mm. it? And then when we do something about it, I'm a big believer that we do it together and I think that that is a that is a pretty big difference, but that is the that is also the uncomfortable work. Now we're in the uncomfortable yeah. work territory because yeah, no, now 100%. I just left my house or picked yeah. up the phone, I put down the mask, and I went and said I need help with this. And now that someone gave me a bunch of things I need to go do, and uh, I read this thing somewhere once that said, um, if you spend a lot of time, it's it's interesting. We talk about like you have to have a vision for something and almost be able to see that it's real. But there was a study, and I forgot where it was, that said sometimes focusing on something that you want to make happen can be really detrimental because what happens is your brain actually starts to believe that it's done it. Hmm. And then you have less pain of not doing it and you're less motivated to go do it. Okay. And so to some degree, it's really easy. I've done this to say, okay, I'm going to start a new diet. And like download my fitness pal and like get it, go to the grocery that first time and do all that stuff. And now I feel yeah. like, man, I've done all the stuff. Yeah. And then week two, week three comes around and it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm really fit right now. Like I, I kind of feel like 
This is my own stuff. Right. If I pass on dessert, it feels like I've done a workout. And okay. that's not true. Right. That's not that's not necessarily true. So for us, uh, it's easy to think about these things that we're going to go do. But the uncomfortable work is actually following through and doing them. Yeah. No, I think that's actually huge. I, I've heard that. That very same thing, um, but I, not in the way that you said, like your brain convinces yourself that you've already done it. And the way I've actually heard, I don't know if you know who Naveen Jain is, no. but he was on a, on a podcast and he's just super successful guy, has so much going on. But he described that same thought process as he said, money is like an orgasm. If you focus too hard on it, you're not going to get it. <laughs> um, and just kind of, and I felt like right when you said that, that's what I thought about. Yeah. You know, you can't think too hard about it or else you kind of maybe lose focus or you know your brain commits you it's a balance you, you have to know where you're going but yeah. you have to be loose enough with where, that's why that's why surrendering the outcome is so important yeah mm. yeah, yeah. huge part um all right so I've, i always like to ask the last couple uh questions to everybody so how old are you right now uh 40 i just turned 40 just turned 40 yeah, happy- i feel very old <laughs> well happy birthday thank you um so not to make you feel older, but in 10 years down the road, you're going to be 50. Yeah. Um, reality of the situation. Uh, I want you to put yourself in uh, 50-year-old Michael's Michael's shoes. Yeah. What, what, what have you done? What have you created? What do you accomplish? And what do you want to be doing? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, so uh, I am an entrepreneur who had a startup. And now I'm at a nonprofit that we help other people do startups. And um, right now I am focused on two startups for myself. One is really important and one is less important. Um, the first one is, uh, having a child. Yeah. And so 10 years from now, um, <laughs> not really, that. yeah, not 10 years from now, but like maybe 10, uh, months from now, right. I want to have mastered figuring out how to make all that work. Um, because I know that it is, a life change. I have a lot of friends that have gone through it and I want to be the best dad that I can be. And I've worked really hard. And so whatever it takes to be the best dad I can be and the best husband I can be for my family, I want to work on this with the same level of intentionality. I've done everything else. So hopefully I'll have a 10 year old. That's a startup that I'm proud of. Um, And then the second thing really is uh, I'm really focused on teaching these principles to other people, especially people not in recovery um, for how they can become uh, masters of authentic growth and be like leaders that this world has never seen. And so I've started a company called Leader Confidential. Um, you can go to it, leaderconfidential.com. And we do uh, a program that teaches professionals how to integrate these principles into their work as a, whether they're CEO or frontline person at a company to grow and to gain a competitive advantage over other people. And our mission is to put a million leaders through this program, because if we do that, there's 25 million managers in America and all it takes is 3% to start a revolution. And one day I want to see on a job description that you have to master authentic growth to have the privilege to lead people. Gotcha. That, God, that's awesome. But that is less important than the child. Yeah. I, mean, I will say that yeah, is less important than the child. I definitely was not expecting that to be the first startup. <laughs> yeah. but that's cool. Um, so before I ask the last question, I want to, I want to commend you, man. This has been an awesome interview. I've never, Thank you for never me. done uh, anything like this before and I've uh, never had anybody answer questions like this before. So I'm, I'm been really, been really moved by it. And I know I'll go back and listen to it and be even more inspired and be able to follow those principles and everything like that because, I think what your the principles that you're teaching, like you said, you kind of learned it during recovery, but they're so applicable to all areas of life. And they kept coming back to us during the interview yep. that I think it's awesome that you're really just trying to, you know, spread that message. Like you said, just keep 
preaching it and preaching it, but in a way that's not like you need to do this. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Back to that. And that's hard for me, but yes, hopefully I'll strike that tone. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Well, I want you to tell, you already said kind of your one website, but I want you to tell everybody where they can find you online, where they can, you know, watch your TED talk on YouTube, obviously. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, The TED talks called um, to be a great leader, do what drug addicts do. Um, And the website's leaderconfidential.com. And probably the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I, I don't really do social media to the extent that I sh- well, I don't know if I should, right. um, but LinkedIn is probably the best way to connect with me and, or, or just go to the website and uh, you can send a note to us that way. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Well, the last question I always like to ask everybody yeah. is talks a lot about becoming the best version of yourself. And I always think that becoming that person is a constant journey. I don't think we're ever at that best version of ourselves, but we're always striving to be hopefully on our deathbed one day. We can maybe take our breath, last breath having the confidence that we got close enough yeah. um, to to our own satisfaction. But what I want to ask for you personally is what are three things that you could do or three things that you could work on in order to become closer to that best version of yourself? Oh, wow. Um, I should have known the answer to these. Um, <laughs> so, well, I mean, lucky for me, I, I really focus on this stuff. So um, one thing for me is uh, being able to – I really care about people and I'm blessed to have all the, a lot of opportunities and this is going to, I hate the way that this sounds, but I'm going to be real. Um, saying no to things is, um, a real challenge for me. Um, I do it and actually a lot of people think I do it well, but I don't do it well enough. And with the child on the way, it's something that I've been really thinking about. Oh yeah. Um, and the truth is, is that the reason that I don't say no is I want people to like me. Um, and I want to be willing to dare greatly and do the next right thing, even if it means I say no. Um, and I think I need to get better at that as I work on both these startups. So that's, that's one thing that I'm actively working on right now. Um, another one to me is going to be just learning how to be present more. Um, I'm, I love having intellectual conversations and growth conversations with people that are entrepreneurs and all and, and in recovery, anyone else. And this is all going to come back to my kid, man. Uh, sitting there being present with my child. thats a, I have a lot of friends with kids. It's a whole different deal. Yeah. Like the kid isn't sitting there saying, yeah, our growth projections for year two are going to be awesome. They're saying goo goo gaga. And I think it's going to be an incredible opportunity for me to practice mindfulness mm-hmm. um, and being present and, and patient in a great way. And then number three, and I just kind of touched on it, but um, I meditate uh, most mornings, um, but I want to, I do about 20 minutes in the mornings and I really, really, really want to get to 40 um, because I think that in doing so, I will be able to be more present with my child. And I also think that if I'm able to do that, then I'll be able to say no to things. And all of that goes back to, can I find my unique purpose on this earth and allocate my energy towards that um, rather than doing all the things that I kind of want to do or I think I want to do that aren't necessarily what are, what are meant for me. Mm. Gotcha. Well, so, those are awesome. I love those three. You didn't have them before. I didn't have them before, but now I know. It's good. It's a good thing I know now, yeah. though, right? Because I got to I gotta go do that. Yeah. We'll, we'll sit here and do this 10, uh, 10 years from yeah, now. We'll see if go. I did them. <laughs> there you go. Very good. Well, that's all we got. I appreciate you coming in. Thanks, that was man. awesome. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Now it's time to act. Leave a like and a comment on YouTube. Subscribe to that page. If you're on iTunes, leave it a five-star review. Help the show move up the ranks so more and more people can get access to it. Feel free to take a screenshot of this episode and let me know you're listening on Instagram. You can go support Michael at michaelbrodyweight.com and can go learn more about the Leader Confidential program at leaderconfidential.com. Just remember, whatever your weakness is, it just might be your greatest asset. Don't hold your true self back from becoming what you were made to become. 
Thanks so much for listening. Keep taking consistent action every single day. Now it's time to go out and upgrade yourself today to get closer and closer to your best you.